Welcome back to STEM Fatale, your woman in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma, which I don't know. Do people know those aren't our real last names, Emlyn? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it's fine if they think it is. They don't need to know who I am. <laughs> it's probably best if they don't. True. Stay anonymous. So anonymous. <laughs> um, so today is our two-year anniversary. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. That's so crazy. So we started this pod two years ago. I, I, that's how the time has fla- flown. Flown. <laughs> flown. <laughs> flown. Um, yeah, and so our first episode... Way back two years ago was about Mary Anning, mm-hmm. one of the OG fossil hunters. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to hearken back to <gasps> some of the stuff we talked about then with Mary Anning Ooh. and talk about another like paleontologist, geologist. Oh, that's so Additionally, cool. I've been playing Animal Crossing a lot yes. and collecting lots of fossils myself. Mm-hmm. So I am a budding paleontologist as a my internet i found a t-rex skull nice <laughs> look at that on look the internet that. on the game in the game just nice. going to clarify <laughs> this is a game yeah 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 it didn't actually that'd be impressive and then so combined with my animal crossing paleontology i also was listening to uh michael crichton's jurassic park audiobook on our drive. Oh. So it's been a lot of paleontology and a lot of dinosaurs in my mind. <laughs> so it's all coming together. Got dinos on the brain. I got dinos on the brain. Cool. I'm excited. Yeah. So today, in celebration of our two-year anniversary, I want to tell you about fossil brains and the founder of the field of paleoneurology. <gasps> Odily. Tilly uh, Edinger. Whoa. So her name is Odalie, but she goes by Tilly. Okay, cool. Our second Tilly. Who is our first Tilly? Um, Beatrice Schilling, I think, went by Tilly. Oh, went by Tilly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. I'm so excited. Wait, so yeah, okay. paleo neurology? Is that what you said? Paleo neurology. Whoa. Okay. A study of fossil brains. <gasps> That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. This is going to be really cool. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Strap in. Okay. <laughs> click. All right. It's my seatbelt. Good. Nice. So uh, soft tissues like brains generally do not fossilize terribly well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're extremely rare in the fossil record which prevents scientists historically from easily comparing brains in the past with, you know, present brains or comparing different brains from the past. Right. 
However, what I'm going to tell you about today is how Tilly Edinger developed and honed new techniques that led to an entire discipline of science studying fossil brains. (gasps) So Tilly Edinger was born to a wealthy Jewish family in 1897 in Frankfurt, Germany. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Foreshadowing. (sighs) So her father, Ludwig Edinger, founded the first neurological research institute, I think in the world or at least in Germany. And her mother, Anna Goldschmidt, uh, was a leading social advocate uh, and activist in Frankfurt during the time. Okay, interesting. And Tilly was the youngest of three siblings. Mm-hmm. So Tilly was educated in the Schiller Schule, starting at the age of 12, um, which was the only secondary girls' school in Frankfurt. And as a teenager, she began to lose her hearing and required hearing aids um, from a pretty young age. Oh, wow. And so by the time that she was an adult, she was actually completely deaf, deaf without them. So as a child, uh, she was interested in neurology, having been exposed to it by her father. However, according to some sources, her father did not support her interest in neurology because she was a girl. Um, and I don't know. Well, sexist reasons. He, as a neurologist, he knows about brains and he knows girl brains. Mm. Mm. Not No good, no not good. Not good for studying brains because it's from a girl's head. Yeah. Yeah. Checks out. That's <laughs> the I mean, it doesn't, but yes. <laughs> um, and so, regardless of the fact that her father may or may not have been supportive, um, and despite the fact that she wasn't really expected to work mm-hmm. um, due to her wealth, so they were relatively wealthy, so it was really expected of her to just marry well oh. off. Oh, um, right. And not to get a job. But despite this, she pursued her interests and went on to study at the University of Heidelberg and the University of Munich. Wow. Yeah, Munich, uh, with the intention of majoring in zoology. Um, But then, while she was there, became more interested in in geology and paleontology. Cool. Yeah. So... um, She then started a master's at the University of Frankfurt in 1920, where she studied a combination of geology, zoology, and psychology, which is like a really interesting mix. Okay. She she describes this time as, quote, seven rather unhappy semesters studying (gasps) zoology. (laughs) I wonder why. Uh, well, I I will tell you, I don't think she liked zoology that much. She said she, um, while she was reading the principles of vertebrate paleobiology, she received, quote, a new life began most happy ever since. So I think just zoology, she didn't like it as much. But then once she got into like vertebrate paleobiology, she was like, yes. Mm -hmm. It's like when I learn about the cell, I'm like, maybe I don't like biology. Oh my gosh. I sometimes I'm just like, do we really have to call everything like GMP, GCR, RL? And like, we make students memorize all this shit. And it's just like, <laughs> sorry, I feel that in the same way when I start looking at cellular biology. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, who 
thought of the naming conventions for any of this. <laughs> this is all BS. But I'm sure so, other people feel that way about the way we name living organisms. <laughs> and yeah, categorize all the scientific them. Scientific names. Yep, yeah. Yep. Different fish for different wishes. Different people. fishes for different wishes. Yes. Yeah. That's how the saying goes. So she worked under the mentorship for her masters of Fritz Deverman, who was a vertebrate paleontologist. However, his job was also as the managing director of the uh, Sankenberg Museum. And so a lot of his time was taken up by managerial duties and like curatorial stuff. Okay, okay. And her dissertation was to be on the palate. So like the... Yeah, like nose, mouth, yeah, bone area of the Nothosaurus, which is this was this semi-marine reptile from the Triassic period Ooh. that was like four meters long. Whoa! Oh my gosh! Dinosaurs were so big; they were so, and I don't even think this was a very big one. No, <laughs> but apparently they acted kind of like seals, which I Aww. like. Or like, yeah, because they were semi, so they were in the water and out of the water, yeah, okay. kind of flipper like, yeah, uh, yeah. So while she was investigating the Nothosaurus skulls to look at this palette, she became she came across a natural brain cast. <gasps> so this like fossil brain was actually a natural cast that formed by sediments that filled the empty cranium of the animal once it had died. Um, and then that sediment oh, had fossilized. Wow. So it's like, it's almost like making a mold of a skull. Yeah. Like the sediment makes a mold of the skull and then fossilizes exactly. like that. Yeah. Cool. And so she found the specimen and she realized that it had preserved a lot of the external features of the brain with great oh, detail. Oh, wow. And having okay. knowing things about like neurology and stuff like that helped her kind of decipher the fact that all of these external features of this cast were features of the brain. So it was doing a good yeah. job in like preserving you know indentations and variation yeah um, in the brain. Just to give you a kind of I think this is a very uh how do I how do I describe this? I think her masters was similar to a lot of people's experiences in academia uh -oh. in terms of mentorship. Mm. Oh, interesting. And, <laughs> uh and so in describing the role her advisor Deverman uh, played in her dissertation project, she writes, quote, Professor Deverman gave me four papers on Nothosaurus on January 4th, 1920, suggesting that I should write my thesis on the Nothosaurus palette. His uh -huh. next step in the matter was to read my, my master's <laughs> in his Easter holidays, 1921, and to return it saying it was too long and nothing else. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was like, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Uh, three years later, he told me he didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> he told me it was too long and gave me no suggestions on yeah. how to condense it. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, the struggle, the struggle, there's not that many differences. No. 
Wow, that's funny. <sighs> yeah, I saw that and I was like, yes, <laughs> indeed. Hmm, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so for her masters, she used uh, what are known as endocasts, mm. which are internal casts of a hollow object. Right. Um, where you can make molds of the brain using the inside of the brain case and the skull. Oh, cool. Okay. And so she, noticing that, like, you could get all this fine detail from this natural um, cast that had been formed with the sediment and fossilized, she then realized, oh, well, we could make casts. Yeah. Nice. Having all, we have all of these skulls, and then maybe we can say something about the brain and brain evolution. Wow. So smart. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah, so using these endocasts, this became a really influential method in this budding field that she Mm -hmm. would kind of pioneer. And this work that she did kind of throughout her career was based on the discovery that brains left these imprints in fossilized skulls, which allowed her and other paleontologists to look at the anatomy of the brain uh, of uh, extinct organisms. And so uh, her master's work focused on describing the brain of the Nothosaurus and it's and comparing it to the its living relative the alligator oh, uh, which allowed her okay. to make more inferences about the anatomy of the brain and also to determine how well these casts actually do at preserving details of the brain. Yeah, like so you can she make could... this uh, yeah. validate this like method. Yeah. Um, by using it with extent organisms such as alligator where you can you know what the brain actually looks like and then you can make a mold from the skull of an alligator yeah and like compare the real brain to the mold and see how good the method is right exactly cool yeah so her interest and knowledge of neurology that came from her interest and her work that her father did because her father did comparative anatomy of of extant organism so he compared the brains of living species oh okay and so yeah. she kind of took this and her interest in paleontology and added this like time aspect where you could look back in time at these brains so at this point which, was her dad like i still don't think you're good at studying brains <laughs> i really have i couldn't find very much about like, there's a lot of information about her, you know, like, she dedicated a bunch of books to him and Aww. things like that. But I really couldn't find anything about his reactions. And maybe he wasn't around. Like, so yeah. we're going to get into, you know, we're in Germany. Right. In the 20s. Um. Yeah, things are about foreboding. World War Two. Things are about to hit the shit's about to hit the fan. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't know if uh, he didn't like live long enough to really have very much interactions with her career. Mm -hmm. That is all to say, I don't really know much about their relationship from like this point on. Yeah, and it's possible, you know, it's like maybe he thought she shouldn't study brains because people women just didn't do that you know rather Mm -hmm. than he wouldn't be happy for her if she succeeded more just like 
oh, that's yeah, a and it was thing only, for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there was only really one place where I saw a reference that he disapproved. And it could also just be like, you know, wealthy women of this kind of position generally just married. So maybe it wasn't a thing about neurology, but just like, oh, that's not what you're kind of expected to do. So I don't really know. There really wasn't very much information about him from like the things I read. Okay. But who knows? She seems to have given a lot of credit and a lot of like, I think they were at least on good enough terms. Yeah, that's good. Because she dedicated a lot of stuff to him. It wasn't like she rebelled and then they disowned her. No, no. Not it doesn't seem nearly that dramatic. <laughs> Other things will be very dramatic, but yeah, not that. not that good. All right. So, um, from her masters, a description of the nat- this natural brain case that she had found in the Nothosaurus uh, was published in the journal Senckenbergianian. Uh-huh. I don't know. In mm-hmm. 1921, um, and then once she got her masters. She became an unpaid assistant from 1921 to 1927 at the Geological Paleontological uh, Geological Paleontological Institute at the University <laughs> of Frankfurt. Wow! Um, so at the uh, at the Sankenberg Museum at the University of Frankfurt. Okay. okay. She then continued on to work as an unpaid curator. Of vertebrate oh. paleontology at the museum from 1927 to 1938. So she did a lot of unpaid work. How? I feel like that's not uncommon for like no. the women we talk about at that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how do they buy food or well, pay rent? I mean, she was wealthy. Oh, okay. So she just had money. Yeah. Was she still living at home? I think she lived, yeah, I think so. I think she was living at her, like, family home. Okay. Interesting. Um, But, yeah, I mean, very early on, we get this, like, weeding out of, like, the only women that were able to often be scientists back in the day were those that, like, could work for no money. Yeah. Or even as anyone... Becoming a scientist was kind yeah, of like yeah, it that. was a, yeah. a wealthy endeavor, or was mm-hmm. it an endeavor of the wealthy? Yeah, for a long time, a passion, passion project, sort of exactly. And kind of similarly, so she spent while she was the curator and the assistant from 1921 to 1938. Her mother called vertebrate paleontology Tilly's quote hobby. <laughs> Throughout that whole time, <laughs> rather than her career. So right. like, that's got to feel good. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah. Um, and while she was at the museum in these positions, she did have a lot of time to do research and study uh, vertebrates um, and all the collections. Okay. And at the museum, Tilly had no other vertebrate paleontologists besides her advisor, who wasn't, <laughs> you know, necessarily terribly helpful. Yeah, not available. So on one hand, yeah, exactly. So on one hand, this gave Tilly, like, free reign to mm-hmm. use the specimens as she pleased um, and really ask the questions she wanted to ask. But on the other hand, it was a really rather lonely scientific existence at the museum. Yeah. 
And so in response to this isolation, she formed uh, long-term professional and personal relationships with some of the leading European paleontologists of the day. Wow. Um, And yeah, she was very quickly, I think, corresponding with many like famous paleontologists. Nice. Okay. And she, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they had any qualms about her that I could read. (laughs) And she spent much of her time organizing the chaotic collections and exchanging brain casts with other museums to uh, continue her interest and work. She also, so like while she was at the museum, she occasionally gave evening lectures on paleontology for her co-workers, published reviews of scientific papers, um, and put on radio programs about comparative anatomy and physiology for the general public. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like she made kind of a name for herself. You know, pretty Indeed. quickly, at least in that mm-hmm. community and in the, like, uh, people who are interested in paleontology community, yeah. <laughs> which is not easy to do, I'm sure. No. No, indeed. So, during her, like, early work when she was first getting started, she accepted the theoretical framework of brain evolution that was formulated, that was kind of, you know everywhere at the time mm-hmm. that was formulated by American paleontologist O.C. Marsh. Okay. You know no. anything about O.C. Marsh? So he's one of the players of the Bone Wars. So it's like him and like that other guy. I forget <laughs> what his name is. And they like, it's like a crazy story. They were just like competing fiercely to try to um, find fossils before the uh, other and discover more dinosaurs before the other one. They were like sabotaging each other, and it's like a whole oh bro, gosh. like kind of shit show. Of course, um, <laughs> but so he's one of the players in like that. Yeah. Okay. What's called like the Bone Wars? Um, no, I never heard of it. I've never heard that. You know, I don't study dinosaurs. I've never even like. I probably can't even name. More than 10 dinosaurs. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can name 15. So, you know, not the best evolutionary biologist in that sense. <laughs> I mean, after Animal Crossing, maybe you will. You'll <laughs> know. know all of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, so early on, she kind of accepted this framework that he had created about brain evolution. And he had created these like series of quote laws that predicted Mm. mammalian and bird and reptile brain evolution that said that like older individuals like in geologic times, like older individuals had smaller brains and that brain size increased as time went on. So like more modern species have larger brains than their predecessors. Uh, And he also predicted that brain size affected evolution such that small brain species were more likely to go extinct than larger brain species. And so you get the evolution of brain size because the smaller brain species go extinct. Yeah, I kind of remember learning about this. Yeah. Um, However, as like, as Tilly studied the brains of more and more extinct vertebrates, she found a lot of discordance with Marsh's laws right. um, that she would go on to, like, refute some of the things that he was saying. Yeah. 
So while at the University of Frankfurt and the Senckenberg Museum, she realized that by taking lineages that were already well established from other sources, so we like had a good idea of how the species were arranged and like who evolved from what, mm. she could gain great insights into the brain evolution by examining and comparing these fossilized brains. So by using the phylogeny and all of these fossilized skulls, she could then kind of look at the evolution of brains across a phylogeny. That's so cool. So she says, quote, I have noticed that a large literature exists about fossil brains distributed widely in all the journals of the earth, and I have given myself the assignment not only to collect, but also to rework this material into a book called Paleoneurology. Yeah. Yeah. So were other people studying brains then in the same way or were they like, like how were, like were people using her method or what was in all these other books? In all of these other things, essentially they're like, from my understanding, a lot of one-offs of like mm. other people who have similarly found a brain casing, like a, a fossilized oh, brain. gotcha. And they describe it. So it would be like a fossil description. Okay. Okay. Or they would say something about um, the skull that would Mm -hmm. give you information potentially about the brain. So she was like collating all of these. People weren't doing any like systematic cross species or cross time comparisons. Right. Mm -hmm. And weren't really using um, this like endocast that she kind of formalized. So it was mostly taking all these like bits and pieces that people were like one-offs and putting them together. And then I think as she was doing more and more endocasts, other people were also doing it. So like collating all of it. Yeah, that's cool. So while curating, uh, she wrote the founding work on paleoneurology called Die Fossilin Gehirne, Fossil Brains. <laughs> uh, and this was a 250-page review laying out the history of paleoneurology, the state of knowledge, the outstanding questions that would be the focus of her life's work. And in the phylogenetic section, she did a point-by-point examination of Marsh's laws, quote laws, of brain evolution and and used evidence to refute some of them. Nice. And this work was essentially like the... almost single-handedly founded this whole new field of paleoneurology. Wow. All right, now the bad. It's the time. It's the 30s. Uh-oh. So during this time, while she was working at the museum, the Nazi party was rising in power. Starting around 1933, they began, you know, enforcing these, like, racial laws targeting the Jewish population. Yeah. And although many were urging her to leave Germany relatively early in the 30s, including her sister who had already left. Uh, Tilly remained in Frankfurt and was able to maintain her position partially because it like wasn't funded. So like a lot of um, Jewish people were getting fired, weren't allowed to work, Um, but she was able to continue her work because she was pretty much doing it under the table because nobody was paying her. Yeah. Okay. Where was her sister in the U S or in a different country? I don't know. I think she was in the UK, but I'm not positive. Okay. So according to Alice Hamilton, who was a retired Harvard University faculty member and a friend of the family, 
Tilly said at a dinner party in September 1938, quote, So long as they leave me alone, I will stay. After all, Frankfurt is my home. My mother's family has been here since 1560. I was born in this house. Whoa. And I promise you they will never get me into a concentration camp. I always carry with me a fatal dose of Veronal. Oh. So she ca- apparently carried a barbiturate sleeping yeah. aid, like a lethal dose. So that's depressing. I remember we talked about someone else and they were carrying around a barbiturate in case they were captured. Like they were... I feel like it was Sophia. Yeah, I oh, I can't remember. Maybe um the Freuds. Maybe Anna Freud. Mm. I kind of yeah. just remember that. That's yeah, yeah. It's <sighs> <sighs> rough. Yeah, that's pretty intense. But that I, that was not necessary. Good. Yes. In case you're worried. <laughs> So, from 1933 to 1938, she was able to continue to secretly work in the museum under the protection of Rudolf Richter, who was the museum's new director at that time. Oh, okay. However, getting into the like the later 30s, it was clearly getting bad, and so yeah. she inquired to A.S. Romer, who's a paleontologist at Harvard that she had been in contact with and like um, talking science with. Uh, about emigrating to the United States to work at Harvard and seeing if that was a possibility. And so he pretty much was like, yeah, we'll see what we can do. And so she went to the U.S. consulate and was given like a quota number of like when she could potentially emigrate to the U.S. And it was like, okay, well, your number is probably going to come up in two years in 1940. (laughs) <laughs> okay. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's, uh, too late. that's not super helpful. <laughs> yeah. And so along with letters of support and testimonials, one was from George Gaylord Simpson, who oh, yeah. uh, is like, yeah, he's like one of the most influential paleontologists of the 20th century. Apparently, he like is involved in the modern synthesis, mm-hmm. did stuff leading up to punctuated equilibrium, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I've heard of him. So he wrote a <laughs> testimonial for her to the U.S. government, where he says, She is a research scientist of the first rank and is favorably known as such all over the world. She wow. is everywhere recognized as the leading specialist on the study of the brain and nervous system of extinct animals and on the evolution of the gross structure of the brain. She is so preeminent in this field that she may really be said to have created a new branch of science, that of paleoneurology, a study of outstanding value and importance. Wow, that's really nice. So she definitely was like an important, well-known figure. Yeah. At this time. Yeah, it's good that all these people were vouching for her. Yeah. But her hand was kind of played on November 11th, 1938, right after the Kristall knocked. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? Yeah, the night of broken glass. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this is when, like, the Nazis ransacked mm-hmm. Jewish homes, businesses, and synagogues killed and imprisoned hundreds of jews and it was like a huge event over two days um and i think this was like the inciting incident of like oh hi i have to leave now yeah i think so like (laughs) i have to go yeah Uh, we cannot wait anymore um and so 
at this time, uh, Philip Schwartz, who is a professor at the University of Frankfurt, and Alice Hamilton, that friend of the family who was from Harvard, yeah. both used their influence to aid Ed, uh, Tilly in emigrating from Germany uh, into London to work as a translator until she was allowed into the U.S. So, like, they couldn't speed up the process of getting into the U.S., but they did this workaround until so she could get out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Which is so, you know, I think the bigger priority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the U.S. is great. Is Getting it a job? Great. Is great. Yeah, a job is great. But yeah, so but yeah, life um, first. Life is yeah most important. So forfeiting most of her family's wealth. And leaving with only her hand luggage, she was able to flee Germany and get into London. Unfortunately, her brother, Frederick, was not so lucky um, and was killed in 1942. And everything I found just said, like, in the Holocaust. So I don't know if he was in a concentration camp or if he was a casualty of, like, didn't didn't even get to... Uh, a concentration camp, but he didn't make it past the war. Yeah, it's possible they don't even know, right? That's true, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just that that was the last time he might have been heard from, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which is so sad. Yeah. So now that she's in London, um, she was working as a translator while there. That's kind of the gig they got for her. Wow. Uh, and in her spare time, so like she was making enough money to kind of survive. And I think she was, I don't know if she was translating, she was translating German things, I think, for the English. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And so during her spare time in London, she published three paleoneurological papers. In her spare time. <laughs> She's In her spare time. And like the, the museums were closed. She couldn't like go to any of the museums to work. I don't know how she did this. She's very impressive. Mm -hmm. But one was on uh, Chinese ovibovine. So like the Takin and the muskox. Okay. Like those types of species. Um, On the pituitary body of giant vertebrates. Oh my god! And then on the endocranial anatomy of Ipiornithids, which are the elephant birds. So she worked on like the brain anatomy of elephant birds so was she again they're so big like taking other basically like synthesizing information from other studies or was she actually working with the skulls in her spare time somehow i couldn't figure that out i don't know if she was i think some of it was collaborating with other people okay Um, i could see that so i'm not sure how much of it was looking at the literature and piecing things together plus probably some new casts being formed and maybe collaborating with people who did have access to these skulls at the time yeah okay probably but i'm not positive yeah yeah All right, so finally, despite her attempts to hasten the immigration process to the U.S., I mean, I feel her on this one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can't hasten the process. The process will take how long it's got to take because it's a bad process. Um, So despite 
trying to hasten it up, her fi- her number was finally called. Wow. Uh, and so she arrived in New York on May 11th, 1940, and moved to Massachusetts to take a position at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology as a salaried research associate <laughs> in paleontology. For first like paid the first position. time. <laughs> woo, 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 woo. That's 19 crazy. years after getting her master's. And being like, <laughs> and she's like a renowned person in the field. Yes. Yeah. And it's all just but apparently a volunteer. Her, apparently her, sti- her stipend was still so meager that she sub- had to supplement it with translation work. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, you know, a one step forward, one step back. Something That's like that. really bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. So, she, and she didn't, I mean, before she, it was okay, maybe, that she wasn't paid because she had a large fortune. Right. And but now she she's just, left all yeah. of that behind. Yeah. And money is important. <laughs> so, while she was there, she found, she actually really liked the atmosphere at Harvard. Um, and she found the museum lighthearted and congenial and just a great place to work. She even got involved in some prospecting and field work with mm-hmm. A.S. Romer, the one of the collaborators who had helped her bring her into Harvard, um, in the Permian Fossil Basin in Texas. And she got to attend uh, field conferences and things like that. So she really enjoyed her time in Harvard. Nice, nice. And while paleontology was grouped with geology in Germany, so, like, paleontology and geology were very tight-knit disciplines in Germany, at Harvard, she was interacting much more with zoologists and evolutionary biologists, um, which is reflected in her, like, in her work, once she emigrated to the United States, there's a lot more incorporation of evolution um, and things like that, as she's now working more and more with zoologists and evolutionary biologists. Cool. That's awesome. So she collaborated with A.S. Romer on the brain casts of extent uh, amphibians, so like these living amphibians. And by doing this, she could relate uh, systematic and functional differences and amphibians to their endocasts. So she could see like how these different amphibians uh, where they live and how they move and like what their needs are oh. and relate that to differences in their like brain. So like the different sizes of the different proportions of the brain. Does that make yeah. sense? So she was sort of learning a, or trying to, you know, come up with hypotheses about the extinct animals behavior or ecology even Based on similarities in the brain uh, or skull morphologies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, like, if different – and you could do some, like, ground truthing by looking at this in extinct animals where you know what their behavior is. And then you can look and see how that relates to their – the, like, size of different parts of their brains. Yeah. But uh, her primary focus when she got to Harvard was the evolution of the horse brain. From the lower Eocene to modern equids. This was like the big thing she was working on. And so she documented variations in brain form, relative size of different brain areas, and grooves 
uh, and groove patterns in the brain from like early, early horses to modern horses. Ah. So while there, she completed her second seminal work, which is The Evolution of the Horse Brain in 1848. And this work showed that the evolution of horse brains, which was deduced through the fossil record, showed this like branching process, um, showing that structures could evolve independently in parallel in like different lineages. Right. Uh, and this work provided novel insights that you really couldn't determine by just investigating living horse species and like other equids. Nice. Okay. And this also challenged the prevailing theory of the time known as anagenesis, which is the idea that species continue to gradually evolve as one right. interbreeding population. And her work favored and led to a modern understanding of what's known as cladogenesis, which is when there is uh, branching or splitting where evolution can lead to multiple lineages and separate species. Wow. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I'm not sure quite how the horse thing relates, but <laughs> I believe what you're saying. <laughs> I'd have to, like, look at a tree of the horses. Yeah, it's like a tree of horses, and she could see that, like, um... Like, there's separate lineages? There's separate lineages, and that, like, things, certain parts of the brains evolved independently, like, in parallel. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she did that, and by combining neuroanatomy with endocasts, she could determine changes in the size of certain areas of the brain. So this is kind of like um, what she did with the modern amphibians, but she could then yeah. apply that to like um, extinct organisms. And so she could relate the size and evolution of different areas of the brain to the evolution of maybe different lifestyles. Um or different behaviors of those organisms. Yeah, nice. In kind of a silly example, she got into this dispute with a Princeton colleague named Glenn <laughs> Jepson about the identification of a Paleocene fossil brain case. So they had this like little fossil brain case, and in many ways, the brain suggested that it belonged to like an early uh, family of carnivores known as the myacids. So, like, a lot of things were similar to my acids. But Tilly insisted that it was actually an early bat. Oh. Because it had this enlargement of this certain part of the brain, uh, of the midbrain, known as the acoustic colliculi, which is associated with auditory inputs. Oh, So, like, okay. for echolocation, it's, like, yeah. an, a lar enlarged in bats this section of the brain that has to do with auditory stimuluses. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so it was also enlarged in this um, skull that they had found. So she was like, no, I think this is a bat because it has this enlarged section. And so it has probably like echolocation or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. So this... They never actually were able to resolve it with this fossil. <laughs> I guess there just wasn't enough information. Huh. Um, but the reason I include this is like it gives an example of like how, what things she could, uh, like hypotheses she could draw from like these changes in brain size. But also Jepson composed a poem to her about this argument they had, which I like. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm, 
Okay, so this is the poem. Okay, I'm ready. Called the Tilly Bat. Awesome. The Tilly Bat. A curious beast is the Tilly Bat. It surely seems odd and quite silly that, with a brain shape so batty, we'd find glenoids so catty. You'd see why we call it a dilly, Pat. I didn't say it was a good poem. (laughs) The midbrain is hilly, and further, says Tilly. Look here quick and see those colliculi. It had to squeak, not mew. It never walked, it flew. Jep, don't look so placid. It's not a my acid. <laughs> oh my gosh. They had too much you- time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> we don't write enough poems about our, our scientific arguments. You're right. Do you think that should be a new method of science communication? Just communicate arguments and findings in poem? Yes. The spider spins her web of bacteria. Like, that's my dissertation. (laughs) Did you like it? (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Sorry, you were thinking... (laughs) No, I mean, I was going to try to do one off the top of my head, but it's going to not go well, so let's just move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, she's done a lot. Yeah. A- and so, like, going back to this hor- this book of, like, horse brains and evolution, she wrote this, and it was, like, fundamental. Uh, you know, it-, it provided all this evidence for cladogenesis. Yeah. Um, and also just was, like, a really thorough book about the evolution of like brains um that hadn't been done it was just like very very novel and really i think got at like how important her work was and like how much you could deduce from comparing brains uh, across like geological time yeah sounds like it just really solidified certain groups of thinking and Mm -hmm. um and solidified her place in yeah. in history. And, like, the other thing she wrote, Paleoneurology, that book, mm-hmm. like, The Fossil Brain, that was in German. Oh. And so this was in English. And so I think that also, you know, the Americans and the English speakers really took note of this book I and see. this piece of work where they couldn't really have... Yeah. Of her previous work. Right. Okay. And so in, in 1948, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology voted unanimously, quote, that Tilly shall be forced to rewrite <laughs> in the English language her Defossilin Gehirna what? of 1929. So they all were like, you will do this, Tilly. We must have this now. I didn't know you could force someone to rewrite something. <laughs> I hope no one ever makes me do that. Can't you just hire a translator? <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, know. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like very specific, like words and terms, and you don't want to get that wrong. Yeah, but maybe they could ask her. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. That <laughs> she shall be forced. Um. Maybe it's kind and, of a joking phrasing. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But so like this, in order to do this right, this required her to travel across the country to museums. Like, I don't, I think it was like 
not just rewrite it, not just translating it, but rewriting it, incorporating more information. Wow. So doing a whole new, uh, like revive, basically like a second edition. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So she like had to go across the country and back to Europe to all these museums. And so this required like a great deal of funding. And she got funding from like the American Association of Harvard Women, Harvard University, the American Philosophical Society. So she got a lot of money to then go and do this. That's cool. Yeah. So I think like the next 10 years was her pretty much like going around and prophetizing. They said like prophetizing about fossil brains. <laughs> I mean, that's her whole thing, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. Not the worst deal being forced to do that. <laughs> no, no. I I think it was probably as good. long as she wasn't actually forced, you know, which I think Yeah. Hopefully. I, I think I don't yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so she did that in the fifties mostly, and then in the sixties, Tilly became increasingly vocal and disagreeing with um Marsh, the, you know, Bone Wars guy who had made all these laws about brain evolution. Oh, okay. So in a letter to another paleontologist, she referred to Marsh as, quote, the man who fooled all the people all the time and still does. Whoa. So I don't think she liked him terribly much. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then in 1963, she was elected as the president of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Wow. Uh, and she was the first woman to hold that post. Wow. And in a humorous, like, um, I guess, like, in her speech accepting this, she said, um, this most beloved of scientific societies has also now chosen for president a woman who, to me, seems unfit for that post. <gasps> what a jerk. No, she said that. Oh, wait, about herself? About herself. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks she herself is unfit? <laughs> I mean, maybe she's just being modest. Sorry, I thought you were saying that other guy said that about her. Oh, no. I got confused. I mean, maybe he did, but I don't know. wonder why she would say that. You know, just trying to be funny. You know, maybe I'm just not understanding the sarcasm of that time. <laughs> maybe. I feel like um, I'm taking everything so seriously, and it's like, maybe yeah. <laughs> they're all just being silly, and I have no idea. <laughs> it's true. All of these quotes are, like, out of context, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, during her 60s, she really dedicated herself to writing a comprehensive summary of paleoneurology. I think this was, like, an ex um, more of a summary after she had gone and rewritten her her previous um works wow <laughs> however while in cambridge in may 1967 she was crossing the street and due to her deafness was unaware of an oncoming vehicle and was struck and killed in oh, cambridge no. oh my gosh yeah um and so her unfinished book that she had been working on this comprehensive summary of paleoneurology was posthumously completed by her colleagues and finished in 1975. Aww. And this remains the essential reference 
um, for the study of fossil brains. So it's like the essential book to this day. Yeah. Wow. I know. Like you for I for you know you forget that she was pretty much deaf. Yeah. It doesn't seem. Yeah. It's not. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, she had a hearing aid, but I think even the hearing aid wasn't working very well by like, well, as she was getting on right. in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, because I would think it would be hard to communicate. And well, she must have known she knew German and English, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you know. Yeah, she must have been able to hear or read lips. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think she could hear, but, like, it definitely started to take a toll. Like, I didn't mention this, but in, like, 1945, she took a, a year off to be a professor of comparative anatomy at Wellesley College. Oh, okay. Um, but wasn't able to complete that year of teaching because her hearing was deteriorating. Okay. And I think it was just um, too hard to do, like, yeah. teaching. Okay. So then she went back to, like, focus on research. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which was much more easy to do if you can't hear as well. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd actually completely forgotten about that. I know. <laughs> yeah. Aw. You know? Yeah. So uh, I'm glad um, they were of- able to finish her book. Yeah, yeah. And that it's like the leading book. Mm-hmm. So, um, TLDR, uh, Tilly Ettinger <laughs> combined. <laughs> TLDR. Field, At TLDR. the end. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you have to listen through all the way. <laughs> Too long didn't listen. TLDL. TLDL. <laughs> yeah. Too long didn't listen. Uh, so Tilly Ettinger combined the fields of paleontology and neurology to found the field of paleoneurology. She used endocasts of the brain of extent and extinct animals to answer questions about brain evolution and assess the lifestyle of extinct animals. Wow. I can't believe I never heard of her. Right? I went That's crazy. I like put her into Twitter and then found all these people being like, she's my favorite. Yeah. Like, historical scientist and i was like i've never she's not even on any of our lists of like scientists you should know or whatever no women in science you should know those lists are very incomplete (sighs) and they all say the same like 10 people (laughs) yeah (laughs) which are all great people but i'm just yeah they're great but we need more than 10 we love barbara don't tell me there's just love marie curie (laughs) just so good yeah that's awesome. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Like, I hadn't thought about much of that, especially, like, thinking about how you would study brains. Yeah. It was like, she also got into, like, paleoendocrinology, which I was just like, I don't even know <laughs> how you're doing this now. Like, like hormones? hormones? So, like, yeah. ancient, yeah. And I think it was based on, like, the also connecting like the size of different brains with how much hormones are come like yeah. are produced and then wow. trying to understand what would yeah it was a whole thing that's but really cool. very cool very like interdisciplinary yeah i love that another f- 
founder of a whole discipline of science. <sighs> I love it. Amazing. That's so cool. So that's my story of Tilly Edinger for our two-year anniversary. <gasps> Yay! Another Yay! amazing paleontologist. Yeah. Oh, and I'm gonna, um, if I get my act together, you know, knock on wood, I'm gonna put up, like, I'm gonna make little PDFs of different disciplines that we've talked about and, like, the women and links to. Oh, that's a good idea. So, like, idea. if people, because all of our titles really don't <laughs> tell you anything about, like, what subject it is always. <laughs> so I'm gonna make little, like, little PDFs of, like, the medicine ladies and oh, yeah, like our paleontology good, yeah. ladies if you're like or like the astronomy or chemistry or whatnot so i'll hopefully post some of those this week as like our two-year anniversary if people want to delve back into a specific discipline but we'll see we'll see how much i get done and not do my own work. Were you just saying how stressed you are and you're dyeing your hair like 10 different colors? <laughs> no, I'm not stressed. I'm, oh, I'm oh, tired of tired. life. I understand. That's I'm, different. I'm life tired. Yeah, then it's fun I'm, to do I'm other bored. things. Yeah, I got you. Um, yeah. I don't want to do what I'm supposed to be doing. You know what? I was trying to find... A shout out this week that was a paleontologist, and I really? couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. But that would have been cool if I could have. That would. Um. Yeah. There wasn't anything recent that I could find. Hey, That's fair. lady profs, do or lady scientists do more press releases. <laughs> yes, because that's yes, the only it way. It's so hard to find. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I might try to like start searching journals more than news sites, but I can't read papers like because I don't have a campus. <laughs> I don't oh, have a campus yeah. login it anymore. So oh, true. it's like the only way I can hear about them really is through uh, press releases and stuff. So just to saying. <laughs> If you want the public to hear about your science, you have to tell them about it. Okay. You know, also, if you do, if you get a paper, if you listen to this podcast and you get a paper out yeah, and you want to let us. us know, I, we are happy to shout you out. Yes. That's a good. Do our work for us. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Do more work is what we're saying. <laughs> yes. Just kidding. That's not what I meant, but Okay. But I did find, so yeah, for our women who worked this week, I was looking for something fun because we've been so Corona focused and we're both like, we need something different, right? We need, yeah, I can't. We can't. Um, <laughs> just can't. So, okay. So my shout out this week goes to Ayana Howard, who is the current chair of uh, the Georgia Institute for Technology's School of Interactive Computing. And Ooh. she completed a couple of cool studies, um, or her lab, you know, led by her, completed a, a couple cool studies investigating whether humans have gender biases against robots. <laughs> 
Oh, like we don't li- like we don't like female robots or we don't like male robots. Yeah. So in particularly, oh. in particular, I can't talk. In particular, if they were studying if they thought if humans thought female or male robots were better suited to different jobs. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were looking at whether our innate gender biases that we have interacting with other humans uh, translate to our interactions with robots, right? And so to test this, um, let's see, they had humanoid robots introduce themselves to humans over video. And sometimes they had the robots say something like, hi, I'm Mary, with a f- more feminine sounding voice. And other times they had them say they had a male name with a like deeper voice or something. And then other times they just had the robot say hi. And then and maybe they had a more neutral voice, which I'm not sure what that actually sounds like. That's just sort of what it said in the article. Gotcha. And so they had the part. And what the first thing they found is that participants would basically rank the robots as different genders. So they would say, oh, this is a female robot just based mm-hmm. on the name and the voice. Yeah. And even the one that they meant to be as neutral as possible, they often assigned it to a male gender. So people assign huh. robots gender roles, even when they're not trying to be not, you know, obvious gender yeah. at all. Right. Um, so that's something that we do, which is pretty crazy to think about assigning a robot agenda. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then, so the humanoid robot would then say that, or what did they, okay, they then had the humans rank if they thought the robot would be as competent as a human at completing different jobs. And Uh so in this study, the human said that Robots would basically, and so what's interesting about all of this is that they found that overall humans just think robots are really dumb and incompetent. <laughs> that was the overall finding. Okay. Like any robot will do a better job than we would. No, sorry. All robots would do a worse job than we oh, would. Oh, okay. yeah. Gotcha. They th- so basically humans were ranking all robots as incompetent. regardless of the gender they assigned the robot that's good yeah i guess so but what's (laughs) kind of funny is that humans thought that robots would be really bad at some jobs that robots are actually already doing for us Hmm. interesting (laughs) those two jobs that they listed are surgeries like robots are actually used a lot during surgery like complex yeah. surgeries and robots are used a lot in security and humans said that robots would be terrible at both of those jobs. Huh. Um, and here's another quote from the press release. So cumulatively the 200 participants across the two studies thought robots would also fail as nannies, therapists, nurses, firefighters, and they thought they would totally bomb as comedians. 
Well, I agree with some of those. (laughs) But it's funny because Ayanna Howard in the press release sort of refuted that to say there are some pretty funny animatronics that she's met. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Um, But people did think that robots would be good at um, delivering packages, being receptionists, being waiters, and being tour guides. Which I actually, the tour guide thing would be dependent on the place, I think. You know? Having a robot tour guide. Yeah. I don't think they probably, they're knowledgeable. Yeah, I couldn't see it in a jungle, but if you had it in a place where things don't move around, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it as a tour guide, like a city guide. Yeah. So, anyway, most of the time, um, so yeah, people didn't seem to have a lot of gender biases against the robots, despite assigning them genders. They kind of just thought robots wouldn't be good at doing anything. (laughs) (laughs) Was the overall finding. So, just a sort of an interesting study, um... And something a little different for this week. <laughs> no, I liked it. Well, like, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't find more. Maybe I just have no faith in humans. Google and whatever the other one is, Apple, like, tested out different voices. And people only respond positively to, like, telling the, like, female robot what to do. Like, that's crazy. Where, like, either they feel like she's, like, a female robot, they just like the sound of it more, or they yeah. felt like it would be a, they'd do a better job or whatever. But there was definitely, like, that's why all of Siri, Alexa, they're all female voices. It's because people have, like, a strong preference. It could still be that people would have a preference, but in terms of competency, there was just an overwhelming drive to say the robots would be incompetent, you know? Yeah. And so that could mask any, like, preference for a female robot to do a job over, you know, if they asked for preferences, I'd be curious how Mm -hmm. that would change. Yeah. If that's where gender biases would show up, you know? Yeah. Um, Interesting. Oh, wait, and they did ask that. So, right, I forgot to add this. There... They said that there was a small preference for a male robot over a female robot as a package deliverer. Oh, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) So so random. So, I mean, it's it's weird. That is weird. You know? Yeah. (laughs) So that's what they found. I mean, it could be just this group of people or the way these robots looked the people were just like i don't trust these robots but if it were (laughs) say a phone voice robot Mm -hmm. who knows like you know they purposely had robots that looked like people talking yeah so it might be like something about those robots that Mm -hmm. people were like these robots can't do anything but it's hard to tell yeah (laughs) Well, it's the whole gendered robot thing is so strange. Like, there's you know, there's a lot of anime and stuff like that. Yeah, and, like cartoons or um, uh, what is it called? 
the book with the comics. <laughs> the book. Like all of those, like the you know the book with the pictures. Yeah. Um, they all. Like, a lot of them are about robots, but they're often gendered. We're like, there's the yeah. pink robot, and then, like, but why, why inherently would we have gendered robots? Right. I mean, that's, strange. like, But why... I think we just, they're, like, close enough looking like humans or animals that we, like, feel like we need to gender them. Because we gender everything. Like, our aisles at Target. All right. Well, okay. thank you everybody for listening to our two-year anniversary episode. Yay! Um, we would love, as a present to us, yes, if you would rate, review, or subscribe. <laughs> Especially like going on Apple, uh, or and Apple Podcasts, and like writing us a little review. Yeah, we would love that. Share or it. tweeting about it. Yeah, or anything just share like that. it with your friends. Share it. Um. So, but thank you for listening, regardless. Um, and also thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our art. <laughs> I don't know what that was. Uh, almost died. For our awesome art and for Artichoke for our awesome theme music. And as always, go, go stimulate yourself. yourself. Bye. By circa 1820, she ran a